0: There are plenty of places on Earth where the word hot doesn't go far enough to describe the temperature. Death Valley National Park in California, for example, can reach more than 120 degrees Fahrenheit on summer days. The park advises visitors not to hike after 10 a.m. for fear of heat-related illnesses. Tbilisi, Tunisia hit a record-setting 131 degrees in July of 1931, making it one of the hottest locations on the planet. And then there's Petty. Kuber Petty is a small town in southern Australia. It's home to several aboriginal groups, including the Arabana and the Kolkatha. However, it got its name due to the activities of the miners who took over the area there in the early 20th century. Kuber Petty, you see, is derived from the Kolkatha language and translates to white man's holes. Around 1915, a man had come to Kuber Petty to prospect for gold. However, it was his teenage son who found something precious one day, and what he discovered changed everything. The boy had stumbled upon opal, a pearlescent stone that had been coveted by ancient cultures for thousands of years. Once World War I ended, soldiers returning home ventured out into the Australian desert to try their hand at opal mining. Europeans soon followed suit, and what had started with a bit of dumb luck turned into a full-fledged industry that transformed the landscape. Cooper Petty is known today as the opal capital of the world, and it has over 250,000 mineshafts to prove it. There are signs everywhere warning miners and visitors alike to watch their steps. Don't walk backwards, and certainly don't run. Not unless they want to plummet several hundred feet to their deaths. With so many people flocking to the region to hunt for opal, it was only natural for them to also make their homes there. And once the homes were built, residents needed more to live, like food, and recreational activities. Soon enough, a whole town sprouted up. Bars, grocery stores, a hair salon, a bookstore, and even three separate churches were built to accommodate the growing population. The hotels there even had opals embedded in their walls as reminders of what made the town so famous. Of course, none of the food in the grocery store was grown locally. The area was incapable of sustaining life. In fact, the first tree ever planted in town wasn't planted at all. It was made from scrap iron someone had welded together. One reason for a lack of flora was due to the extreme heat, which often reached into the triple digits, even in the shade. The other reason? The lack of rain. Given such extreme conditions, one must wonder how miners and their families were able to survive at all. Well, they didn't build their homes, you see, nor their public buildings. Out in the open, at least they went underground. Half of the town's 1,700 residents lived in homes that were dug into hillsides with the same tools used to mine for opal. They were called dugouts, and because they resided below ground, they almost never got hotter than 75 degrees Fahrenheit. The built-in temperature regulation also meant air conditioning wasn't necessary. These weren't one- or two-room studio apartments either. The homes included full kitchens, living areas, bedrooms, and bathrooms, Many were outfitted with tile floors and carpeting. Families hung pictures on the walls and placed coffee tables in their living rooms. Starting in the 1960s, modern amenities like landline telephones made their way to Cooper Petty dwellings. TV service arrived in 1980, and cell phones became usable there in the 90s. Today, the only distinction between a dugout's above-ground counterpart is the temperature difference. Well, that and the stone walls. All underground buildings there must adhere to local regulations and be equipped with proper ventilation, emergency lighting, and a sturdy ceiling that's at least 2.5 meters thick. The town may have started out as a vast expanse of open space, but over the last hundred years, it's become a bustling metropolis. Tourists can visit the opal capital of the world right under the bright Australian sun before heading underground to cool off. As the old saying goes, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. Well, whoever said that probably didn't know that in the opal capital of the world, the kitchen may be the coolest place to go. Right Rug Flooring. They say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, but that may be true for actors and musicians, but I doubt Emanuel Ninger's imitations were considered equally as flattering. Emanuel was born around 1846 in Germany. Not much is known about his childhood, but it's probably safe to say that he took an early interest in art. When he was 35 years old, though, he moved to Hoboken, New Jersey with his wife and $2000 to their name. He found work painting signs something he had developed quite a skill for, and soon bought a farm in the small town of Westfield, New Jersey. Emanuel's life was on a path toward good fortune, not necessarily as a sign painter, but as a good husband and a neighbor. Unfortunately, his fortune ran short. His $2,000 only got him so far, and painting signs wasn't the road to riches he had hoped for. So he decided to use his artistic talents in another way. Emmanuel reached out to a paper manufacturer called Crane & Company. He bought some of the finest paper they made. Crane & Company were renowned for two reasons. One, they sold high-quality stationery. And two, their biggest client happened to be the United States government. In 1882, all the currency in America was printed on Crane & Company paper. Emanuel Ninger could have used his skill to sketch portraits or paint murals or make anything, really. Instead, he chose to make money. Like, literally, make money. This, of course, was before the days of photocopiers. When it came to currency, this artist did things the hard way. He copied the bills by hand. You see, Emmanuel had a bit of an ego. He was very confident in his work and didn't just believe his notes to be museum-worthy. He thought that they were better than the money being mass-produced by the government and, therefore, worth more than the denominations printed on them. Using the paper that he'd bought from Crane & Company, Emanuel cut it down to size, matching it to the size of a bill he was copying. He then took the empty sheet and soaked it in coffee to give it an aged look. With the paper still wet and pliable, he then dropped it on top of the real bill and lined up the edges before putting both pieces of paper on a pane of glass. The coffee-stained bond was practically transparent, giving Emanuel a perfect look at the currency underneath. Pencil in hand, he traced the image onto the blank sheet. Once the coffee had dried, he switched to pen and ink to finish the drawing. What he had created was a work of art people would carry around in their pockets. Now, the bills weren't perfect. There were some words and phrases on real American currency, which he didn't transcribe onto his own versions. But nobody looked that closely. If they were carrying one of his bills, they then believed that they were carrying something that had come directly from Washington, D.C., Emmanuel is believed to have drawn somewhere in the realm of a few hundred dollars worth of bills per month, more than enough to live on. He became so successful he was able to move off the farm in Westfield to a newer, larger farm in Flagtown, New Jersey. He kept up his operation for over a decade, and even had it reviewed favorably in the New York Times. Yet he couldn’t stop using the bills out in public, probably because he felt the people accepting them were getting a better deal than they realized. After all, they now owned true art. One night in March of 1896, Emmanuel went out to buy beer and other spirits. He asked the barkeep to change out a $50 bill. The man agreed and gave Emmanuel $40 in notes and $10 worth of silver. The artist thanked him and left with his bottles in tow. As the barkeep picked up the bill, he noticed how wet it was, and the ink on one side was running. Realizing that he had been duped, he called on his assistant to chase after Emmanuel and get his money back. The assistant headed into the street and flagged the police officer down to help. Together, they cornered Emmanuel at the ferry landing, waiting to board a boat home. He confessed to everything. Stories about Emmanuel were published in all the New York newspapers, though they referred to him as Jim the Penman, a catchy name that endeared him to the public. He faced a sentence of 15 years for counterfeiting, but the judge only gave him six. Emmanuel was forced to pay a fine of $1. After serving about four years, he was released and he returned to his wife. Emmanuel Ninger learned a very valuable lesson in prison. It doesn't matter how hard you try, some compulsions can't be ignored. After some time at home, he felt the urge to create once again and went right back to making fake money by hand. He turned his attention this time to British pound notes, which were larger than American currency and mostly colored in black and white. Despite going back to his old ways, Emmanuel was never caught again during the remainder of his life. And you could take that fact straight to the bank. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works.